Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We want to tie on to some things that we said last week and, and um, make a couple of comments relative to uh, uh, some new information that we want to get into this week concerning the lives of Abraham, uh, Ishmael, and Isaac. Uh, chapter 15 tells us that uh, Abraham has come back from the great slaughter of the, the five enemy kings, and, or the four enemy kings, I'm sorry, and uh, he meets Melchizedek and he offers him tithes and uh, he declares the, uh, the vow that he made to the Lord that he wouldn't take anything from the king of Sodom or anybody else to show his, uh, his commitment and his determination that he was going to do things God's way and be God's man, if you will. So it says, uh, chapter 15, that the Lord speaks to him and uh, beginning in, well, we'll start in verse 5. We're going to pull some things out of uh, context just for time's sake but the lord brought him forth abroad and said look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them and he said unto him so shall thy seed be and notice verse six and he believed in the lord and he counted that unto him for righteousness now this is not the first time that abraham has trusted him has uh, operated in faith bible says in hebrews chapter 11 that it was faith that caused him to leave ur of the chaldees and his homeland and so forth but this is the first time that the Bible really identifies um, God counting righteousness on the behalf of Abraham because of his faith. And it has to do with the, the promise. Of course, we know the promise is not just natural seed, but, the, but uh, Jesus and those who will become part of the family of God because of him. But it says, uh, it uh, tells us further on in the chapter in verse 18 that uh, God made a covenant with him and tells us some of the details about the covenant. That brings us to chapter 16. The thing that I wanted to, to bring to your attention is this is the greatest display of faith in the life of Abraham to date, and it's identified by the scriptures as far as God's uh, commending him for it. Now, in chapter 16, it says, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my, my maid, and it may be that I may obtain its children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Now I want you to notice the, the contrast between those two scriptures or those two events. It talks about Abraham believed in God, God's promise, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now he's listening to his wife trying to figure out how to help God out. He's making the same mistake that Adam made in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't use the same language, but we know that it has to be the same thing. When Eve looked upon the fruit that was forbidden to eat, and then he took it and ate of it after she did. Here's a situation where, and, and really this is true of Abraham's life up until a certain point. And we'll talk about where things really change. But Abraham is kind of in and out. And remember, Abraham is identified as the father of faith. He's identified as the father of us all. Well, God told him to leave his homeland and his family. And he took his family with him. He left his homeland, but he took his family with him. God told him to follow him to a land that he would take him to. We know that land was Canaan. But Abraham got to, um, or Abram got to Haran and stopped. We know that finally he separated from Lot because of the disagreement and the argument between the servants. If it hadn't been for that, we don't know if he ever would have fully obeyed what God told him to do. But once he did, 
once he put himself in a position where he was in obedience to the things of God, every step he takes to line up exactly with what God said, God takes another step toward him and gives him another promise. Time after time after time. This time, he's been promised a son of his own loins. And so he listens to Sarah helping, trying to figure out how it's going to work. Now, let me ask you a question. Where was Sarah when the covenant was taking place? Where was Sarah when the promise was made? What does Sarah know about helping God make things come to pass? Now, folks, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we could take a little turn here and say the, the moral of the story is husbands never listen to your wives. But that wouldn't be right. But there is a, a, a truth here, and everything the Bible says happened in the days of old and written in the Old Testament is written as a type and a shadow for us, for our admonition. So there are things that we need to learn about this, and that is very simply this. Oftentimes, the people that are closest to you will be the ones that throw stumbling blocks in your way from following God. You're going to have to decide when they should be listened to and when they shouldn't. So it says, Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarah, and Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. She thought her pregnancy elevated her position. Now, I'm sure that that, uh, Sarah didn't even consider that as a possibility. When she first made her suggestion. Very often the, the outcomes. Are a whole lot different. A whole lot more severe than what we think. When we decide that we're going to step outside of. What God told us to do. And Sarah said unto Abram. My wrong be upon thee. I love this scripture. If this is not a woman. I don't know what it is. Her idea. To give Hagar the, to Abram. Abram goes along with it. She said, it's your fault. Sarah said unto Abram, my wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and thee. And she was right. Because no matter whether it was her idea or whatever, Abram was the one that had the responsibility to to determine what was right and what was wrong and stick with what God said. She was right. It was his fault. So what does Abram do? Does he step up and take responsibility with the father of faith now? The one that's our example. Does he step up and take responsibility and say, you're right. We've got to fix this. Abram said unto Sarah, behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleases thee. And when Sarah dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. In other words, what Abraham does is he abdicates his responsibility as head of the household. I mean, there's a, there's a lesson to learn here. Just because things don't go our way doesn't mean we get to bail. So she, Hagar, flees while she's pregnant. Verse 7, and the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water. Jesus seems to show up at wells. And time and time and time again, when he does, he reveals himself. Just like the woman at the well of Samaria, he revealed himself to her as the Messiah. Here the angel of the Lord appears unto to, uh, Hagar. He found her by a fountain of water. One translation, many translations actually say springs of water. But it's, uh, it's referred to in verse 14 as a well. 
So it must have been a spring and a well, some kind of connection together. That's a type of the, 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 uh, the word of God where we are to find Jesus, find him in the word. The angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness by the fountain in the way of Shur or to Shur and said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou? And notice what he identifies her as. He doesn't identify her as Abraham's wife. She thinks she should be elevated because of her condition. Now she's carrying Abraham's child. Not so much in God's eyes. God said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. Now, folks, here's a, here's a great lesson for us to learn. And that is when things go against us and when we're treated harshly, maybe even unjustly, our first tendency is to bail and run. And that's never God's plan. Notice what he said to do. Return to the place where you're being mistreated and submit yourself unto her hands. In other words, the lesson is this. Let God work things out. This situation was created because Sarah and Abraham were working together to try to help God out. Sarah's idea, but Abraham agreed to it. Now things don't work out the way anybody wants them to. And Hagar runs. And Jesus says, the angel of the Lord is probably a uh, predetermined appearance of the Lord. The angel of the Lord says, go back to your mistress's house. Go back to the place where you have trouble. Folks, if we can't trust God in the middle of a hard place, where is it we think we're going to trust him? Anybody can trust him when things are easy. Anybody can say, oh, yeah, I believe God when your pocket's full of money. Anybody can say, oh, yeah, Jesus is my healer when you're not being attacked with sickness. That's easy. It's in the hard places that faith is tried. It's in the hard places that faith is proven. It's in the hard places that patience is developed. Return to your mistress and submit yourself unto her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, now he gives her a promise. He doesn't just get on to her and tell her, you dirty thing, get back there where you're supposed to be. He gives her a promise. The angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall, be not, shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shall bear a son, and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spoke unto her, Thou, thou God, seest me, For she said, have I also here looked after him that sought me or seeth me? In other words, she said, did I come looking for you or did you come looking for me? Wherefore, the well that is is there is called something, beer something, which means the well of the living one who sees me. Behold, it's between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abraham was 40 and, well, 86 years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. The, um, uh, Ishmael becomes the, the, the father of the Arab nations. And the one thing that God said about him, was, him and his seed, would be that they would fight everybody. 
It's interesting when you talk to people about the Middle East situation, everybody or a number of people want to blame it on Israel. And if it wasn't for Israel, if we could just do away with the nation of Israel, then everything would be fine. Well, the nation of Israel was absent for hundreds of years. And the Arab nations were still fighting among themselves. They were fighting for Israel was reestablished as a nation. So what was the problem then? Well, the reality is it was just what God said it would be. And it always will be. Always will be. Chapter 17 tells us about God appearing to Abram and talking to him about the the birth of of, uh, Isaac. Chapter 18 tells us about the the angels that come to him. There's uh, more about the promise of of Abram's son, Isaac, being born. The story of uh, God telling Abram about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 19 is the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 20 is interesting because here we see Abraham again. And remember, the Bible says that Abram, Romans chapter 4, said that Abraham was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. In other words, he developed faith when it came to the birth of Isaac when he was about 100 years old. So 13 to 14 years have passed between Ishmael being born and Isaac being born. And during that time, or at the end of that time, when he's 100 years old, the Bible identifies an unwavering, unshakable faith that Abraham has developed. But in chapter 20, it tells us that Abram journeyed from, uh, or Abraham, God's changed his name by now. Abraham journeys to Gerar, and he tells the same lie that he told in Egypt. Now, where is the man of faith trusting God to protect him no matter what? He told Abimelech. Was that who it was? The king of uh, yeah, Abimelech, king of Gerar. That Sarah was his sister. And so the king took her, took him, intended to make her his wife. God appears to him in a night dream, in a dream in the night and says, you're a dead man because she belongs to somebody else. He's going, well, I didn't know that. That wasn't my fault. I was told she was his sister. You know that's right, don't you, God? And the Lord said, that's the only reason I haven't killed you. You haven't touched her and you're, you're operating under the integrity of your own heart. Now, what is it about the man of faith? And folks, this is something that um, I guess maybe the best way to say it is this. Just because you have one faith victory or even a great faith victory, just because you've learned to stand in faith in a certain area or in a certain manner, in a certain circumstance, without wavering, don't think that the tests are done. Walking by faith is a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week job, and it always will be. You never get to the place where you're strong enough in faith that you don't have to think, that, wait a minute, am I going to walk in the Word or not? Why isn't Abraham asking God, what do I do to, for protection here? Has he not found out in the... In the uh, the military operation against the four enemy kings that took hold of Lot and his goods and uh, you know, took the, the spoils of Sodom and Gomorrah, has he not learned that God would provide for him and protect him? I think it's important for us to realize that the same battles you may have fought before are just practice for the battles that you'll fight in the future. You never quit having to fight the fight of faith. So Abram tells the same lie that he told when he went to Egypt when he first started this stuff. And God provides for him. God takes care of him. 
Isaac is born in chapter 21. And it says, uh, verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God has made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Now, notice beginning in verse 8. We'll read down through verse 21. Here's the story of Ishmael and Isaac together. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Now, Ishmael, remember, is 13, 14 years old, somewhere around there. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. In other words, Abraham didn't want to send her away. Abraham's plan was for them to be joint heirs. Abraham's plan was for Ishmael to grow up in his house just like Isaac, to be brothers. And Sarah wouldn't have any part of it. So God has to intervene and tell Abraham what to do. God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of that bondwoman. And all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In other words, he's saying, there are a lot of times you need to listen to your wife. You messed up the first time. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to her ever. And he holds Abraham responsible for doing what Sarah said to do. And also of the son... Of the bondwoman will I make as a nation, make a nation because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning. Now, here's one thing about Abraham, and it says that you'll see this a couple of different times. When Abraham finally gets direction from God, he's quick to obey. When he knows exactly what he's supposed to do. Now, when it's left up to him to interpret certain things, he's not too good at that. There's one thing about the Bible, and that is the Bible shows people as real people, it doesn't try to gloss over anything. It doesn't try to show him as perfect all the time, never missing it, never, never have any flaws or failures or anything like that. The Bible shows people as they really are. And I believe for a very important reason, and that is so you can relate to them. Because you know you're not like these perfect people that portray themselves, never having missed it. Joseph is one of the hardest people for me to relate to. Because you can't find anything that that guy did wrong. Except maybe shooting his mouth off about his vision in front of his brothers. Probably wasn't the smartest thing for him to do. But otherwise, I mean, Joseph is just nearly perfect. In every situation, he handles it just exactly the right way. I love the story of Joseph, but I sure can't relate to it. How do you relate to a guy that never misses it? We don't have that trouble with Abraham. Abraham's in and out, up and down. But he finds out what God wants him to do, and so he rises up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on, his sho- on her shoulder and the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, in the, the, um, the book of Romans, Paul identifies the relationship between Isaac and Ishmael as types of uh, the family of God and the nation of Israel. And I'm sure that didn't make him any friends when he was in his ministry. 
I mean, the Jews were already against him and after him. And now he talks about Ishmael, which is the father of most of the, the greatest enemies of Israel throughout the history of those nations. And he says that Ishmael is a type of the nation of Israel. And the first thing that makes me, and the reason he says that is because they rejected the son of promise. Their natural Israel, their natural descendants of Abraham, but they've rejected the seed of Abraham, which is Jesus. And so whereas they think they've got something to rely on and a covenant to stand upon, they're really wandering in the wilderness like Ishmael did. So they wandered first in the wilderness. Then it says in verse 15 that the water was spent in the bottle. Here's another type of the Spirit of God having departed from the nation of Israel. The water was spent in the bottle, and she cast a child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down over against him a good way off, as it were, a bow shot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Now here's a type of Israel at the end of the church age. Because they get to the place where they're near death and they lament and wail and weep for their own condition and God hears them. Well, we know that takes place during the war that starts the tribulation period where Russia and the coalition armies come out against him, against Israel, and everybody's against them. They're standing alone, and God hears them, sweeps in and defeats their enemies in one 24-hour period. So that's what this is a type of. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes. This is what God will do with Israel. God will open her eyes and showed her a well of water, which represents Jesus in the word. Paul said that all of Israel will be saved. Now, I don't think that means literally every person, every Jew will be saved. But he's talking about a time where God will reveal himself in power to the nation of Israel once again. They'll see Jesus and they'll flock into the kingdom of God. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. The spirit of God comes back to the nation of Israel. And God was with the lad and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. The word Paran means beauty. And his mother took a wife out of, of, out of the land of Egypt. That even has a, um, a prophetic reference. In Isaiah chapter 9, it talks about that Egypt, Assyria, and Israel will all be together at the end. Now, most people think that that must be during the millennium, and they, uh, they could be right. I don't know. It wouldn't make sense that it would be that way during the tribulation, so it probably is. They probably are right. But it talks about the... Uh, in the Old Testament prophecies, it talks about Israel dwelling, uh, the nation of Israel dwelling in the desert that blooms like a rose. That's talking about the end time stuff or the millennial stuff. And, in, and these are all things that are typed and shown forth through Ishmael leaving and being cast out by Sarah. And turn with me to chapter 22. Let's talk about Isaac a little bit. 
Well, actually, we're talking about Abraham, but Isaac's involved. And it said, and it came to pass after these things, and that's always instructive because it's talking about after these things, meaning the completion of one thing and, this, and stepping over into something else. It's talking about here's a new beginning for Abram, Abraham. And it came to pass after those things that God did tempt. The word tempt is the word test. Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here am I. And he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Now notice we're going to see that phrase again and again. Take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now let's talk about testing and tempting, uh, God tempting or testing. I know we don't like to use the word tempt, but it really fits. The problem is that, uh, that many people think, well, God can't tempt anybody. That's not true. The Bible says in James that God doesn't tempt or test anybody with evil. But every time you see the word of God that gives direction to you, it's a test whether or not you're going to act on it. It's not evil. But when you found out that tithing was something that God expected of you, that becomes a test. Every offering becomes a test. Are we going to act on what the word of God says to do? Or are we just going to do things our own way? That's not the devil tempting us or testing us. He's trying to talk us out of paying our tithes. But God will always challenge you according to the word. Maybe that's a better word to use is challenge. Because that's exactly what he does. He challenges Abraham. Now, Abraham is a type of God. And really, the, the, uh, the offering of Isaac on the, on the Mount Moriah is more about Abraham than it is Isaac. We don't know how old he is, but we know he's pretty well grown because of the, the way that uh, uh, he carries the wood up the mountain and, and so forth. He's not some young little kid. He's got to be, you know, maybe in his 20s, maybe even older than that. So I want you to look at this story from Abraham's perspective, not Isaac's. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting things about it from Isaac's point of view. What, what will, you know, what's going to happen? Why am I doing this? Should I do this? As far as obeying what his dad says and so forth. But Isaac, none of that is brought out. Isaac is shown as a willing participant because Isaac represents Jesus, the son to be sacrificed. But I want you to see it from, from Abraham's perspective, from God's point of view, literally. Let's start again. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test or challenge Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee down, get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering. Please notice the words burnt offering. That means sin offering. Abraham knows he's talking about a sin offering. The first indication in all of Scripture, and whether Abraham understood this or not, or whether it was just a type for us to understand today, you decide for yourself. But for the first time, the Bible identifies that it's going to take a human sacrifice to fulfill the, the requirements for sin, the penalty of sin. A human sacrifice is the first time this is, this is the first time that's mentioned or shown to us. So he says, offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. Notice what Abraham does. He didn't argue with God. He didn't try to talk God out of it. And Abraham rose up early in the morning. He's operating instantly without hesitation. And so he rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. 
And Isaac, his son, and Claver cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, I want you to notice the third day. This is a type of Jesus being sacrificed and it's the three days before he was raised from the dead and so forth. The third day. In other words, Abraham's got three days to ponder this situation. He's got three days to consider what God's telling him and why. He knows that God said that Isaac would be the, the heir of promise. He said that in, through Isaac, your seed shall be like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, that like the dust of the earth. He knows that's through Isaac. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19 says that Abraham accounted God as faithful and able even to raise him from the, the dead if necessary. Now stop and think about what that means. If he makes a burnt offering out of Isaac, then God's just not going to have to restore life to him. He's going to have to give him a new body. Because the, the, the sacrifice is intended to burn Isaac up. So there's a lot of circumstances about this that we might not ordinarily consider because we don't operate in burnt sacrifices, burnt offerings and such. But Abraham, on the third day, lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And notice what he says, and come again to you. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 said that he, God, um, uh, he counted God as able to raise Isaac from the dead, whereof he received him as a figure, the King James says. In other words, as far as Abraham was concerned, he was going through with what God told him to do. He was going to offer Isaac as the sacrifice. And it, as far as he was concerned, it was already a done deal because of the promise of God through Isaac that Isaac was raised from the dead already. That's some kind of faith. The uh, Septuagint says of this that Abraham said, having worshipped, we will return to you. So verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of a burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. But he took the fire in his hand and a knife and they went both of them together. The fire signifies judgment and purification. It signifies God's role in Jesus' sacrifice. And the knife in Abraham's hand, which is a type of the father, signifies that it was God that smote Jesus on the cross, not man. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 53 says. And Isaac spake unto his, Abraham his father. Now realize Abraham is well over 100 years old, maybe close to 120 at this point. Isaac could easily overpower his father. He could refuse. He could do any number of things. But again, he's just a willing servant to his father's will. Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. The word provide means to see or to show forth. So he said, My son, God will see, will see or show forth himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now there's a lot of ways we could look at this. God himself is the provider, and the name of the place is named Jehovah Jireh, which most people think it means the Lord my provider. And that there's, that's partial meaning, but it's not really the, the best translation. 
But um, uh, the real important thing for us to see here, and remember, we're looking at this from God's standpoint, not Abraham's or even Isaac's, where it says, my son God will provide himself a lamb. You need to understand something. We look at salvation, we look at the sacrifice of Jesus and the benefits of salvation from a personal standpoint. We look at it like what it benefits us and what uh, what we get out of it and the fact that we're made righteous and blessed and healed and, and so forth because of Jesus' work on the cross. And without question, those things are true. But folks, realize that Jesus was sacrificed for one and only one reason. He wasn't sacrificed for you. He was sacrificed for God. You were the recipient and the beneficiary of what he did. But the sacrifice was made for God himself. In other words, God wanted you saved more than you wanted to be saved. God wanted the eradication of sin more than mankind wanted or even needed it to be eradicated. This sacrifice of Isaac that typifies Jesus shows us that God is making this sacrifice, initiating this sacrifice on his own, at his own will, taking his son, his only son, the one that he loves, for himself, to satisfy himself where the claims of justice against sin are concerned. That's what this verse means. So he says, my son, God will provide himself or for himself a lamb for a burnt offering that provide himself is also true he provided his only son a part of god himself but it literally refers to the provision for himself regarding sin he will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering so they went both of them together and they came to the place which god had told him of and abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound isaac his son Again, Isaac's just going along with this. We don't hear a peep out of Isaac in any of this except questioning, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice we're going to make? Laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay him. And the angel of the Lord called out unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, which literally means the Lord will see. As it is said to this day, in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord. Now, folks, I hope you understand you can't get any bigger swear word than that. There's no greater oath that God could take it or make except himself. So he said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. For because thou hast done this thing, and has not withheld thy son, thine only son, there it is again, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of, the, of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, 
And they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, folks, I want you to understand something and realize, look at verse 19 again. The story leaves Isaac on the place of sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it went. But the recounting of the story, because it's a type of God offering his son, his only son, whom he loves, it leaves Isaac at the place of the sacrifice. It says Abraham returned. Doesn't say Isaac returned with him. Now he did. That was God's. That was Abraham's plan all along. The lad now will return after worshiping. But the way the story is recounted, it leaves Isaac, which is a type of Jesus, at the place of sacrifice, because Jesus didn't come down from the cross before the sacrifice was made. That's where the type ends. God's son finished it up. If I could leave you with one thought tonight, it would be this. And I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking about this very same thing. And I, I want you to really consider that this story means something for us. It's not just a recounting of history. History. It's not just telling us about a historical event. It means something for us. The Bible is a living word, which means what we see there has application for us at any and every time, all of God's children, no matter when they live. The application of this story for me is that God made the sacrifice for himself. Not for you. You were the beneficiary. He didn't make the sacrifice because man was in such great need. He made the sacrifice to eradicate sin which held his creation in bondage. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. He says, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Here's the point that I'm trying to make. If we realize and really come to see that God made the sacrifice for himself, not for you, but for himself, if we really understood that and meditated on that and came down to understand it the way that I think God wants us to, it would do away with a lot of the, the problems we have about whether or not God is really on our side or whether or not we're really worthy of what the Bible says is ours. It would do away with a lot of the way we see ourselves, the negative ways that we see ourselves. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If, literally since, God be for us, who can be against us? In other words, the most true thing in the universe, more real than the chair you're sitting in or the things that you can see and feel around you, more real than any of those things, God made a sacrifice of his own son, his son, thine only son, his only son, for himself to fulfill his plan. Not because he looked down the road of time and saw that you were going to be such a great person. Well, we need to get them saved. We need to make sure they make heaven. It had nothing to do with us in that sense. God made the sacrifice for himself. He smote his own son to be the sacrifice to eradicate sin for himself. And you were the beneficiary. Since God before us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. The sacrifice has been made. Who can charge you with anything? The sacrifice was made. Not for you. Not even for your sake. God did it for himself. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, if we understood the degree of love that it took God to give up his own son, if we understood the degree of love it took for Jesus to be like Isaac and just as a willing servant to his father's will, if we understood the way that I think God wants us to, the love of God that was necessary to make a sacrifice of his only son for himself to satisfy his own claims of justice, the own re- his own requirements of justice that sin had stripped away. If we understood God's love to give Jesus for us, we wouldn't wonder if God would really help us out of our situations. We wouldn't wonder whether or not God would really help us pay our bills. We wouldn't wonder if God would really manifest his healing power on our behalf. Those things would be side issues because we would understand that it was the love of God that satisfied the claims of justice for himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, if you don't, I hope you meditate on it. Because when Paul talks about he that gave up his only son, spared not his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It's saying you've got a blank check because of the love of God to offer his own son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your willingness to offer your son. We thank you for the example of Abraham and the faith that he showed to be willing to offer his too. Father, help us to see the love that you have for us. Help us to see the love that you that it took, that you showed toward us to offer Jesus. So that we realize our relationship from your point of view, not just the way we see it, but from your point of view. Thank you, Father, that because you are with us, who can stand against us? Because Jesus died for us, there is no condemnation to us. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see the greatness of your love in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, your Son, your only Son. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God loves you. I know we say that and we use that kind of as a catchphrase. But God really loves you. Enough to give up his only son. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.